0: Hello, this is Peter Baxter, Editor of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology. It's a great privilege and pleasure to introduce this podcast. In it, we're going to be discussing the paper, A Systematic Review of Interventions for Children with Cerebral Palsy, State of the Evidence, written by Iona Novak, Sarah McIntyre, Catherine Morgan, Maney Campbell, Leah Dark, Natalie Morton, Elise Stumble, Sally Ann Wilson and Shona Goldsmith, which is in the October 2013 issue of the journal. It will be discussed by Iona Novak, who is Associate Professor at the Notre Dame University, Sydney, Australia, and also Head of Research at the Cerebral Palsy Alliance Research Institute in Sydney, Australia. She's also an international collaborator of the CanChild Network at McMaster, Canada, who is one of the authors. And Dr. Mike Massal, who is Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Chicago, And at Coma Children's Hospital, Chicago, and also is the lead for the Kennedy Research Center for Intellectual and Neurodevelopmental Disability at that center, who has written a commentary on the article as well. Can we start with you, please, Aida, to outline the paper and its background?
1: Excitingly, in the last decade, the cerebral palsy evidence base has rapidly expanded and this has provided clinicians and families with the possibility of newer, safer and more effective interventions. There are now in fact 64 discrete different interventions for cerebral palsy in the published literature. However, the sheer volume of the published literature makes it difficult for both clinicians to keep up to date and families to choose what to do. So the aim of this paper was to systematically describe the best available evidence for cerebral palsy interventions. And we did that using two systems, firstly the GRADE system developed by Gordon Guyatt to look at the quality of evidence and the recommendations for use. And these findings were complemented by the evidence of a traffic light system which gives a green, red and yellow light to actually provide guidance about what to do. We used a systematic review of systematic reviews looking at the highest quality of cerebral palsy research evidence available. Systematic reviews were preferentially chosen because they provide a summary of large bodies of evidence and they can help explain differences between studies and they also know to limit bias. We used the standard Cochrane Library review methodology with a structured search strategy and appraisal method. What we found There were 166 articles that met our inclusion criteria, 74% of these articles were systematic reviews, and they were looking at 64 different interventions for cerebral palsy. What we found of the 64 different interventions was that 24% of the interventions had actually been proven to be effective. This is a really good news story for people with cerebral palsy and people providing cerebral palsy services, that there's been a rapid event in effective services available for this group. 70% of the evidence base has uncertain effects, but much of this evidence is promising, and we recommend that routine outcome measurement is used in clinical practice, where we're not certain whether it will or won't help a person reach their goals. And Interestingly, 6% of the evidence base had been proven ineffective, and therefore should be discontinued. These findings were consistent with current neuroscience and pharmacological knowledge about cerebral palsy and an additional finding we found was that all the effective interventions or the green light interventions seemed to work at only one level of the international classification of function. What were these interventions? The things that worked for children with cerebral palsy included anticonvulsants, bimanual training, botulinum toxin, bisphosphonates, casting, constraint-induced movement therapy, context-focused therapy, diazepam, fitness training, goal-directed training, hip surveillance, home programs, therapy post-toxin, pressure care, and selective dorsal rhizotomy. So in summary, evidence supports 15 different green light interventions, and these should be in use and are part of routine standard care now for children with cerebral palsy as frontline best available evidence. The yellow light interventions, or the ones that we're not certain about, should be accompanied by a sensitive outcome measure to confirm whether or not that the intervention is helping the child and the family reach their goals, and red light interventions should be discontinued because, happily, effective alternatives exist.
2: Mike, do you want to comment, please? It is an honour to have waded through all the wonderful details that are in this paper and its graphic organization because I think that any of us who have done systematic reviews know how complex an undertaking is. And many of us come from only one discipline and I think Iona, one of the major things your group did was to not only be interdisciplinary in terms of your team of evaluators, but to be interdisciplinary in all the relevant literature. So could you comment, because the larger audience may not understand the available literature that's out there.
1: Yeah, thanks Mike. I think yes, it was very important. We did have an interdisciplinary group of authors and we did that very uh, much on purpose because whilst as professions we think about certain topics, that's not really the way families think about their child. They think about what does their child want to do, need to do and is expected to do next and so we tried to think about this paper from the perspective of how a parent might think about their child and how they might ask questions of health professionals rather than expect them to think in terms of our professional bodies of literature and that was I think for me one of the things that turned up some of the interesting findings in the paper that allowed us to compare some of the different interventions available head to head and think about the different goals. I think Often as practitioners, we aim to be very helpful and we like to think and believe that a lot of the interventions we offer do many, many things and offer many benefits. It was of great interest to me when we broke that information down that really effective interventions, and as I said, we have a lot of them now, but they seem to only do one job, and so what that tells me in terms of interdisciplinary work is it's really important to work with families to understand what it is that they're wanting to achieve so that you choose an intervention that matches that goal rather than hoping an intervention does a broader job than that.
2: And, And I think that was the very important thing of your paper. For example... Families want to help improve how the child performs in motor areas, and your paper breaks down what should we do for spasticity management, what should we do for contracture management, and how do these relate, and what should we do for motor functioning. So share with us some of the things that we found that were helpful in those complex areas of motor challenges.
1: Yeah, excitingly, in the last 10 years, there's been a number of interventions invented that actually are very effective for children with cerebral palsy for improving their motor function. And all of these things that work, which include constraint-induced movement therapy, bimanual training, goal-directed training, something called context-focused therapists, where we change around the child, therapy after botulinum toxin provided by occupational therapists and home programs. Those six interventions all have something remarkably in common about them, and that is they all belong to uh, the dynamic systems or motor learning way of thinking. That is that it's important we understand what it is the child wants to do, that we practice the real-life task, preferably in real life environments, um, at a very high dose, um, in a repetitive and structured mode. And these six interventions all have that in common. And it's just over 15 years ago in the literature, some very great cerebral palsy researchers called for more of this type of research in the literature because we were unfortunately not seeing the gains or the size of the gains we wanted to see from some of the other approaches where motor is attempted to be normalized and not what the child wants to do but attempt to teach them normal movements through hands-on facilitation and techniques such as the like and researchers called for this other approach and it turns out that there's been many many randomized controlled trials confirming the same thing that this is the way to go so the bottom line for families and for clinicians here is that If you actually ask the child what it is, what real task they want to achieve, and then develop a very task-specific structured motor program, children with cerebral palsy do have a very good response to these treatments. And this is really exciting because this is a shift in the literature, but it also confirms what we understand these days about neuroplasticity. And the treatment approaches are all consistent with what we understand about neuroplasticity.
2: I think that last statement and... Uh, the way you frame the complexity of the motor outcomes should be very helpful to both professionals and families, because it's not only that one should do something that one sees sometimes some dramatic change, like Botox in upper extremities that are impaired in motor positioning, but then it gives the therapist and the team and the family to work together on the goals and the supports to make the advantage of what has happened with the intervention carry-through in real life. That's the takeaway message. Is, is that uh, an over-interpretation or is that you know, that the current models are that uh, both combining the medical intervention at a certain level in conjunction with goal setting and with individual and family determined orientation of those goals is a way to do some of these more complex interventions.
1: Yeah, I think it's a very good observation, Dr. Masala. I think one of the things that we notice with this review when you're looking at what works is that a number of the medical interventions, such as the spasticity management options or the contraction management options that look promising, they do a really good job of managing the symptoms of cerebral palsy and also uh, stopping a child from getting worse due to the secondary-associated impairments that can happen with cerebral palsy that can cause a deterioration in motor function. And um, in addition, if we want to improve motor function, as I was saying before, those goal-directed neuroplastic approaches where we take a training, they're the ones that take the child forward with learning those tasks. So, of course, when you use those two Set of interventions in concert, you, you get the best possible outcomes. You've got one group of interventions improving a person's health and stopping them from getting worse, and another group that's actually training tasks and is moving the child forward. And these are, of course, both of primary beneficiary to the child because they're preventing pain, they're preventing secondary limitations, and also they're helping them achieve the sort of things that they want to do.
2: And see, I think that's also critical for the audience to understand because you not only reviewed studies based on benefit, you also made sure that the interventions would not cause disproportionate adverse side effects.
1: Yeah, I think that the crux of medical care is do no harm. And we need to be very frank and careful and objective when we're choosing evidence-based interventions. Even sometimes we like doing something or we're good at doing something, but we need to be constantly reading the literature and it's a lesson I learned writing this paper that the evidence base is so rapidly changing when we look at the data in five-year increments it's exponentially going up which means unless you're reading it's very difficult to stay up to date and that means things that you might be good at now may in 10 years time not be the most helpful things to be doing so we have to be open to change and receptive and and possible to that so we can stay true to this idea of do no harm. And many of the interventions which we found in this review are less helpful these days or um, even ineffective. They were developed usually some time ago with the best available knowledge at that time. But fortunately for people with cerebral palsy, a lot more knowledge is now available and we have the choice of different treatments and it's up to us to offer those treatments and to move forward with the evidence base.
2: Another area that families worry about with respect to the social independence of their children are areas of self-care and communicative functioning. And I thought it was very helpful that there were certain things that were very much considered as go, meaning that they were green light, evidence alert, had data to support them, Interventions for both self care and communication, can you describe that and describe some of the excitement that you found on those interventions?
1: Yes, I agree. It is exciting that um we can actually teach these self-care skills to children because ultimately adults tell us that the things that are most helpful to them as a person with cerebral palsy is having functional independence and having communication with others. And often if you look at qualitative data, they reflect that that aspect of their early intervention was much more helpful to them than some of the physical aspects we've done so many times for so many years. And so I think the excitement here is that goal-directed training and practice using a home program approach which fits with practicing tasks in a real-life environment means that if the just-right challenge is there, can actually learn to do some of these tasks independently, which, of course, is great. When um, parents and professionals often want to do the best for people and that in, in sometimes can accidentally mean overhelping. helping that children with cerebral palsy can learn to do these tasks using these treatment approaches. In addition, we're seeing important focus on communication in this field and and more speech pathologists are joining this field and considering research in the area. And this is really important, the research in this area amongst communication is very difficult to conduct because as we know cerebral palsy is a heterogeneous condition and often a lot of the um, augmentative communication devices that are important to use with these people are no two systems alike which makes it very difficult to do these high quality trials where we try to control every variable in research but we are seeing very promising trends to AAC being a very helpful way forward for people with cerebral palsy and I think if anything there's a message here that we do know from some great data from other groups such as Talsano and Hannah's paper looking at the gross motor curves, we do have a very strong indication of when children reach their upper motor potential and so it's very important that we do think about introducing these self-care and our communication functions really early because we get an idea after two years of age of where these children are going to sit long term that we don't wait until they fail at these tasks before we augment them, that we actually work on uh, supplementing them early so they can have the best possible quality of life and ability to be included in society.
2: Iona, I don't know if all the audience understands what AAC means, and could you just comment on what that abbreviation stands for and the range of options it includes?
1: Sure. So AAC is a term used by speech pathologists to be alternative and augmentative communication. And so there's a continuum of interventions that might be offered to a person, which might be the use of symbols instead of words. And there might be simple symbols. There might be photographs in a book that a person points to through to incredibly complex um, individualized high tech devices, which um, offer speech augmentation. And, you know, people with cerebral palsy, they may have uh, some of them profound physical disability, but normal or above-average IQ and and can communicate incredibly complex information with these devices. So um, it's a full continuum of what can be offered.
2: Another thing that too often the larger medical community is not as well informed about are the interventions to manage behavior and social skills and as all of us know who are in the field we look at the whole child those are very important areas can you comment on some of the things that are helpful for parents in those and and health professionals in those areas
1: Yeah, thank you. I think behavior disorders are a very under-recognized and validated problem in children with cerebral palsy. The rate of behavior disorders has not been studied as well as we'd like, but it looks like it's as high as one in four or one in five children have a behavior disorder. And some of this does, of course, stem from communication frustration but there are incredibly effective interventions that have been studied well in other diagnostic groups but not studied well in cerebral palsy. So the evidence looks very promising here. I'm pleased to say Dr. Baxter that this review is already out of date. I think since we started Whittingham and Sanderson have got some randomized controlled trial data in cerebral palsy looking at positive behavior supports for parents showing that this actually is probably more of a green light. So, so this is a really important approach that using positive behaviour support strategies for children's cerebral palsy can be highly effective. So that's very promising. And also we do know that there's a strong relationship between parent coping and child outcome. And there are a number of very promising interventions for improving parent coping. And I think one of the lessons here is that we do need to systematically and routinely ask families how they're doing because this will also affect their well-being but it will also affect the child's well-being. So in our surveillance program in Australia, in addition to looking at typical issues such as hip surveillance, we're also routinely surveilling our parents' well-being knowing that this does have a number of effective intervention approaches such as coaching, behavior therapy, parent-to-parent support, and those can be incredibly important for helping a parent to cope long-term, for the family to stay together, and all of which is, of course, beneficial to the child.
2: I was always taught that one of the other areas that put an enormous amount on family with respect to stress was mealtime management and feeding skills, Mm -hmm. and you know, since I started practice 25 years ago, there have been major advances medically in supporting nutrition. Well, what do we know about helping children with those feeding and oral motor skills?
1: Yeah, nutrition is an incredibly important issue with children with cerebral palsy. Too often we hear people say, well, they're just thin because they have cerebral palsy. And in fact, Westbom's group in the Swedish register were able to show that those with FCS 5 or the most severe level of physical disability, 50% of those children were actually starving, and that could be intervened upon using non-oral feeding techniques such as a gastrostomy tube. Um, and so, it is incredibly important that we do actually not make assumptions about this; that we check and measure this. Stevenson's work gives us some guidelines of what to think about the appropriate weight and height for children with cerebral palsy, but there are interventions. This has not been studied as well as we probably need it to be, but that's also because they're um, a more niche group. But we do need to recognise that from registry data, currently one in fifteen people with cerebral palsy might need non-oral feeding and gastrostomy seems to work for most of those, but you have to manage the adverse events associated. And then, as you mentioned, Professor Sal, that you have to think about their relationship with the family because often for a child with a severe disability, one of the most nurturing things a parent can do is to feed their child and have to think about what impact that has on the parent. By taking that role away from them. And that means an important amount of discussion to help come to a shared decision-making model about what's the right thing for that family and for the safety of the child with swallowing food.
2: The other area that families and your perspective for health professionals offer is also a life course framework. Like one of the things that I noticed was that you incorporated in this review strategies to improve bone density, what's known, what's unknown, what did you find?
1: Yeah, importantly, we're understanding more about this issue. Um, this phosphonate seems to be a very helpful intervention for this group, but only for certain subgroups. And I think the well-known researchers in this area, Henderson, have made it very clear that a large, well-powered, randomized control trial in this group is particularly difficult to do. And we're probably not going to ever get that trial done because it's impossible to assemble the sort of sample size that would be needed but we are seeing pleasing trends from bisphosphonate. The vitamin D looks promising. Uh, the evidence for standing frames um, is partially there and then some people are trying a technique called whole body vibration although not really from a data perspective is much known about that in cerebral palsy. So we do have some options and the best predictor of fracture is a previous fracture so anytime that somebody is seeing a child with that has a fracture then they should confirm whether uh, bone density strategies from evidence have been put in
2: place. The important thing in this paper there was a small number of interventions that have been proven based on the best available evidence to not work in the ways to improve motor or developmental outcomes and Two of those were quite expensive. One was hyperbaric oxygen, and I think the other was cranial sacral therapy. Mm -hmm. Can you comment on, you know, what you found on those two areas?
1: Yeah. So in hyperbaric oxygen, there's been three uh, high-quality studies conducted, and a meta-analyses we conducted and published elsewhere has shown that even though this intervention aims to improve motor function, and you would see some gains during the treatment period, the gains are not superior to any other treatment technique and so this is not the cure that people hope that it might be. The same with craniosacral therapy, there's a very high quality, uh, good randomized controlled trial showing no no benefits from these interventions and they are both expensive interventions with associated risks from hyperbaric oxygen might include hearing loss for example and from craniosacral therapy there is a recorded case of a spinal change uh, due to the manipulation I think also it's fair to say there are two therapy interventions, then neurodevelopmental therapy and sensor integration, which also parents may be choosing to buy or are being offered privately by practitioners who, there's also been more research into those areas suggesting that it doesn't have the treatment effect that we would have pushed for. And, um, I think it's important that people understand this when they're choosing treatments. That it's not these things, are are all worth trialing at an experimental level to see whether we can create a benefit for cerebral palsy. But interestingly, they're not giving the gains that we hoped for. But in fact, there are a number of green light interventions that do give those gains that we've been hoping for. And so if you had a choice, then you're probably going to choose the ones that work.
2: I also thought it was very important that you really acknowledge that some of the longer-term impact or some of the more complex, more multi-dimensional outcomes such as functioning and participation had not as much evidence as we had hoped for, even though the ICF model is more than a decade old.
1: Yeah, I think you raise a good point. It's somewhat startling to see the lack of interventions that directly impact on uh, participation and quality of life, although perhaps This type of review um, maybe ought to have included an extraction of policy uh, and we might have seen a green light evidence that way. We do know that in countries in the Nordic areas, there is higher rates of inclusion and it seems to be directly related to social policy. So there is some hope in that area. But what we did learn here is that an intervention works at the same level as ICF that it's targeting. It doesn't seem to have an upstream downstream benefit, which is what we always hope for in healthcare, that one intervention can do many things. Um, but we didn't see that from the data. So, of course, that could be an artifact of randomized trials, That usually you pick uh, one primary endpoint and maybe the other endpoints aren't powered as well, although it seemed to be a consistent trend amongst all of these papers that interventions worked well at one level of the ICF, but not at two or three, as we hoped for, which means clinically that if people are needing to get arranged of outcomes, particularly at the participation level, then we really need to invent participation interventions that actually directly target participation rather than believing that an improvement in motor skills would lead to an upstream benefit in participation. And that seems to be the logic that comes from this looking at the data from what we call the helicopter view. So there are groups underway, a couple of them, Law's group and Palisano's group, looking at this invention of interventions that are directly targeting participation. I think it's an exciting watch to face because perhaps we can do a lot more up there if we actually focus our treatment in that specific way.
2: And this is a time, as Congress has shut down in the United States, that we have to do some critical examination of the scarcity of resources that are currently available, whether they're financial or political, are there any emerging interventions that you would see, especially given your involvement in some of the multi-center networks in Australia, that you would consider as potential ways to address those gaps in improving participation or improving functioning.
1: Yeah, I think um, one of the interesting things, if we talk as an example out of that motor training literature, those six interventions that were shown to work, some of them have been compared head to head. And, and seem to get similar results, which tells us that it, it's about being task specific, it's about being goal focused, it's about having repetitive practice. And interestingly, those other studies and work by Zach and colleagues in meta analyses is showing that. Those interventions can be carried out not just um, in an intensive randomized controlled trial, but they can also be carried out in a home program model, which is some research I've conducted earlier, which is a promising thing for families because not everybody can afford to get to a treatment center with regularity or high intensity because we know transport issues are often a big barrier for families with a child with a disability. That there is exciting options looking more creatively at therapists being the coach for these types of interventions and then people doing the practice at home in their real environment because the dose seems to be the key to the success here. So if you get the what piece of the intervention right and then you practice it uh, routinely and, and at high doses, then we seem to get good effect. And I think this is very promising for people when we're thinking about resource allocation in that some people call this a distributed model of care, that some of the care is provided by the health system and much of it is provided by the family. Of course, we need to be checking in with families if they have the emotional and financial capacity to be doing that at that point in their life. but it does seem like it's a possible way to achieve these sorts of interventions, which is exciting for people of all different levels of socioeconomic background.
2: You know, another thing that was... Very much emphasized by your systematic review of these areas was the importance of in what I, what are called niche interventions, very specific and very individualized, the importance of creating N of one registries with networking and protocols to improve our understanding of what works for who and how. Can you comment on that?
1: Yeah, I think some of the way forward here is that multi-centered collaboration is clearly a necessary way forward in this field, and that's because this is a heterogeneous condition. Trials are extensive to conduct. The resources available for trials is becoming tighter and tighter, and collectively, we can do a lot together. And, um the randomized controlled trial is the gold standard for looking at intervention effectiveness but of course in people with cerebral palsy or more niche problems and conditions you do need to move and importantly to other designs and I think the Swedish group has and his co-authors have done a lovely job of using the register methodology to look at prospective treatment outcomes such as hip surveillance and, and they tell us a lot so I think a lot of these spaces where we have not yet enough evidence to be sure there are some promising way forward. Yes, we could collaborate for international randomized trials. We could use registries. We could use other methodologies such as single system design in a very systematic way and actually answer these questions in a more thorough way. So I think the field has really got a lot of momentum um, and there's a a lot of research possibilities available now, which means that we could even have more answers for more families.
2: And I think that latter statement, especially Because with current communication technologies, whether they be webinars or podcasts, or our dialogue that all of us in this podcast have had as we've observed the scientific data presented at the international meetings or at the American Academy of Cerebral Palsy Developmental Medicine meetings, which is the U.S equivalent of the international meeting. Those have all been very helpful in improving our awareness of both the complexity of the challenge, the way to improve research, and the way to network with colleagues and editors. And if you could have one thing that you would like for funding mechanisms, what would they be?
1: Well, I think the next big step forward after this review is actually to use this evidence to write decision-making aids for families to choose between these interventions. There is good evidence in other diagnostic groups that decision-making aids assist people to have less decisional conflict, to have less stress, and to feel more comfortable with the choice of treatments. And I think that is the greatest gap in our evidence base at the moment, that we now actually have... Some very good quality evidence for cerebral palsy, and we need to put these into guides to help families to choose. So I think that would be a great step forward in terms of an international collaboration between the academies funding such an initiative.
2: And I think that would also bridge the gap, because no matter how hard one tries from one's discipline perspective to keep up, without access to decision aids, without aspects to training, without knowledge of the literature, it's very hard to get there. Agreed. Well, you've done an outstanding job. I think everyone should take a hard look. Everyone should realize that this is a summation based on the available evidence. In those things that were not certain, you gave people the tool to critically look at it but use some outcome measures to understand it, and you were very cautious in making sure that things that were potentially harmful were not routinely used when there were better ways of addressing management. This was a fantastic interdisciplinary job, and I am so glad it can be disseminated Both by podcast and through the international reputation of developmental medicine and child neurology. Thank you so much.
0: We've now come to the end of our podcast. I hope everyone listening will find this podcast as riveting as I have. Even if the findings are sometimes unexpected and even controversial, this paper emphasizes the importance of the scientific approach to interventions for the large number of children we care for with cerebral palsy. So I think this podcast has been particularly important. I uh, just to remind our listeners that the article is entitled, A Systematic Review of Interventions for Children with Cerebral Palsy, State of the Evidence. It's by Novak et al. in the October 2013 issue.